Okay, Charlotte, Jack, come on up. Yes, come on up. All right, here we come. So here's what's going to do. And now let's see. You know what? I think we need one more. Hmm. Mr. Levi. Where's Mr. Levi? I could use Mr. Levi. Why don't you come up here as well? Guys, now here's what, what's going to happen. I need your help because I have a test. And I have a problem that you guys, you're going to have to help me with in this test, okay? And, and so, but before we do, I need to help pick, figure out who I'm going to pick, okay? So, can you guys do me a favor real quick? We're going to do some experiments. Can you guys line up by height first? Could you guys do that? So the four of you, can you guys just try to line up by height? This might be a little difficult. Okay, let's see. Yeah, come on over here, right there. Okay, about even. All right, we're, we're, we're doing that okay. You know what? Here's what I need to do. Let me see how high each of you can reach. Let me, let me see. Okay, yep, good. All right. Um, so now the last thing I want to do is I wanna, I'm just going to measure you guys real quick. All right, so a little bit over three feet. All right, mm, maybe like 40 inches, maybe 48, very tall. Um, so, all right, you know what? I, I think I've made my decision. You know what, Mr. Levi, why don't you go ahead and sit down, and I'm going to use you guys. All right, here's the thing. We've been talking. We're going to be painting the auditorium, and we're going to paint this room and make it look real nice when we get the new carpet. But somebody, somebody taped some things on the wall back there. And I need that stuff gone before we can, can paint in here. So can you guys do me a favor? Can you guys go try to get that down? Can you guys get those things down? And you know what? You can keep whatever's there. Here, I'll, let me give you guys some things to help. Um, maybe you can try to throw it down. Go ahead. You can try that. It's okay in church. All right, go ahead. You can do it. Well, here, maybe, maybe you can hit it down. Try to hit it down. Let's see. Hmm. All right, keep trying. Oh, that's a good try. Wow. Man, this is a, a tall problem, isn't it? Huh, I, I wonder if, if, someone, if someone could, man, wouldn't it be amazing if someone was tall enough to get that down? What, what do you think? Do you think that someone's tall enough to do that? Maybe you could ask someone that's really tall. Hey, hey, Jack, Charlotte, why don't you guys, who could you think about that maybe could help right now? Who is it? Who can you think of that's, that's much? It's not daddy, okay? It's not me. So who could help us right now? What do you guys think? As you're looking, looking across, and you're, you're watching and you're thinking, who could help us right now? As you're looking and thinking, who could help us right now? Yes! Yeah! Have him come up. Sorry. Okay. Let's see. Let's see what he can do. Oh, man. That is impressive. Okay. Mr. Levi, why don't you get, I told you guys if you could get it down, including the tape, um, that you can have it. So you guys can have this. This is for you. Make sure with your parents before that it's okay for you to have it, okay? But I have some questions for you guys. When I called you guys up, you guys can come over this way. When I called all of you up, what did I do right at the beginning? I had you guys line up, right? And, and who was the tallest? He was the tallest. Okay, and then after that, I had you reach. Who could reach the highest? That's right. That's right. All right, okay. And so we did all of this, and when I measured you, it's going to be the same answer. Who was the, the biggest measurement? That's right. But then I gave you a different problem, and what, who did we forget about? Yeah. We forgot about the person who could help us with that problem. We knew it. Now, when we did the measure, did you guys believe that Mr. Levi was the tallest? Yeah, you believed it. Did you know that? Had you learned it? Had you seen that he was the tallest? Everyone saw that he was the tallest. But when we came to a different problem... We forgot. You guys can go ahead and sit down. We're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning, okay? Thank you for helping out, okay?
Kids, this morning, I'm going to try really hard to include you through this. We're going to be talking about how there are things that we believe, but when we face different problems, we forget about them. That there are things that we know are true and we believe that they're true, but then when it's time for us to use those in different areas, we forget that it's true. This morning in our message, this is what we're going to learn about. That belief in Jesus should result in trusting him during our tests and trials. I'm going to say that again, and then I'm going to explain it a little bit. So this is what our message is about. Belief in Jesus should result in trusting him during our tests and trials. Here's what I mean. So kids, you've been in your Sunday school most of the weeks that we've been doing going through the Gospel of John. But what we've been learning, what the adults have been learning, and I think you've been learning in your Sunday schools, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what's the answer to that question? What's one of the easiest answers? Jesus is God. We've learned that. We've learned why Jesus came. We learned that we are sinners, that there is a big problem that we can't solve, but Jesus can solve it if we believe in him. And so far in the book of John, we've been seeing Jesus telling people, this is who I am, and the response is, believe in me. Almost every chapter we've done so far has been talking about that. This is who I am. The result, believe in me. But what if we've already done that? If we already believe in Jesus, are we done? Can we close the book? Do we not need to study it anymore? No, because what we're going to see is after we believe, there should be things that change. And so what we're going to even see today is that we're going to see some of his disciples, so some of Jesus' disciples, during some tests and during a trial, and how do they take what they believe and use it during that test and trial. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And so if you have paper and you want to draw maybe even some of the miracles that we're going to see, you can do that. But while you're doing that, I just want to encourage you to pay attention to what we're doing. Like I've already said, our big idea is that belief in Jesus should result in trusting him during our tests and trials. Up till now, the main transformational intent is to get to that belief. But when we're talking in a church, many of you, the majority of you, have already arrived at that point. But what difference does it make? As the Gospel of John progresses, we're going to start transitioning more and more to the response, the result of that belief. What does this mean for you as a disciple? We're going to go back, and we're going to go back more about the response that unbelievers should have. We're going to keep on doing that, but more and more we're going to look at the response of believers. Belief in Jesus should result in something. It should result in trusting him during our tests and trials. With that being said, let's jump into the first part of our passage and see the test that the disciples will face. Looking at John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. All right, in these first verses, what John is giving us is the setting. First, we see where is this happening? Well, it's close to the Sea of Galilee, which is going to come back into play later in our passage. But right now, they're up on a mountain. When is this happening? Well, it's happening close to Passover. And John, the author, keeps on doing this. He does this different from any other author. John keeps on bringing back Passover. He keeps on hinting at it. And the reason is because the whole gospel of John is moving forward to something. 
Back at the very beginning, when, when we saw John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Passover Lamb. And so over and over, John, the author, keeps on just throwing this out. Oh, and it was close to Passover. Oh, this happened around Passover. Why? Because we're moving forward until Christ, our sacrificial lamb, can do what he came to do in order to save us. So it's, it's that time. It's, it's not the one that he's going to die, but it's, again, John just throwing some things out. Who, though, is part of this story? We see three different characters or, or categories of people. Jesus, a large crowd, and the disciples. Now, when I was reading this passage earlier this week, um, I missed where we're going to be today. And one of the reasons that I missed that was because my entire focus was when I looked at who is this about, who's, what's going on here, I looked at Jesus and the crowd. That's what's going on here. Let's look at this miracle. Man, 5,000 people are going to be fed. And then I thought, okay, well, well, what is Jesus doing with that miracle? Well, in verses later, when, from verse 22 to 40, Jesus is going to explain that miracle. And so I'm looking at the first verses, and I'm like, man, but all of the teaching for the crowd is later. I think I should just, I'm, and I was, I was legitimately thinking of doing this, preaching chapter, uh, verse 1 through 40. And I'm sure you are all very grateful that I'm not doing that. And you can thank Stephen Page, my wife, and my brother, who when I told them, like, this is what I'm thinking, they were like, no, I think there's more in this first part. Look, look a little bit more deeply. And one of the things that, that clicked it for me was that I had left out the disciples. That Jesus is doing something specific. He's teaching them specifically something, the disciples here. Will we get to the crowd? Absolutely. In next week, we're going to look at the teaching of what this miracle meant for the crowd. But right now, the transformational intent of this passage is for the disciples. How will the disciples respond to Jesus? So, let's look at the test. Let's look at verse 5 of, of chapter 6. Lifting up his eyes then, this is Jesus, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Again, I think I've always, when I've come to this passage, missed this. You know, when I've read this passage, I'm all, always thinking about what's about to happen. I'm thinking, oh man, here comes this miracle. All right, well, man, and I start thinking about, oh, how much food would 5,000 people be? Um, what kind of fish was it? Was it good bread? Like all of these details about the miracle, and yet I miss what Jesus says right here. He did this. He asked him to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So the question that we ask is, why is Jesus testing Philip? Before we answer that, we need to start thinking, though, about tests in general. The whole concept of being tested, at least for me, kind of rubs me the wrong way. I don't, I don't really like this whole idea of, of God testing his disciples, and I think the reason that I don't like it or we don't like it is because we, often, because we don't understand the nature of tests from God. We know that they're going to happen. Everyone's going to face tests, but we don't understand what these tests are for. A lot of times we get these wrong because we can compare God's tests with the wrong things. For example, we might consider the way God tests us to peer-to-peer to, peer -to -peer tests. You know, mutual, uh, equal relationships. Let's say you have, uh, maybe we look at a, a husband and wife, or maybe it's two best friends. And one of the friends or, or one of the spouses is constantly testing the other to see if they really love them. If we saw that, if we saw someone doing that, what would we say about that relationship? We'd say that's an unhealthy relationship. 
If I constantly were going to my wife and saying, prove to me that you love me, let me test, let me, let me do these trials for you to see if you really love me. That, that's the sign of an insecure relationship. It's a sign of a jealous relationship, that there's something wrong there. But it's not the problem of the other person. It's the problem of the person giving the test. If we look to God and we think that his tests are like that, we're going to miss these. But we do, don't we? Like, think about one of the big stories about testing in the Bible. Abraham with Isaac. That God asks Abraham, God gives him a test. And if we look at that wrong, we're like, oh man, God, he loves you already. Like, you don't need to put him through that. Okay, just, just accept that he says he loves you. Why do you need to test it? But that's the wrong way to read it. Hebrews 11, verse 17 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom he said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did not receive him, he, from which he did receive him back. Okay, what's happening? Abraham is being given the opportunity where his faith became sight. Abraham is being tested, not so, so God can be like, well, I'm not really sure if he loves me or not. No, God is giving an opportunity to grow Abraham. Uh, last week or, or two weeks ago, I had the opportunity, uh, I was talking to um, Sherry Boykin about just some different things. And in the course of the conversation, she said this truth to me. Everything that happens is an opportunity to grow closer to Jesus. Everything that happens in your life is an opportunity to grow closer to Jesus. And Sherry said that to me, I'm like, wow, that's true. When we're talking about the tests of peer-to-peer, -peer, of, of insecure things, that's not the result of the test. The test is, is, is actually tears you apart, that kind of thing. But when God tests us, the way that he tested Abraham, it draws them closer. Because it's saying, look, Abraham, this is what you say that you believe about me. This is what you say that you have learned, what you have seen. I'm going to give you an opportunity for it to be reality. And Abraham trusted him so much that he thought, you know what? God's made promises. And if, he, if this happens, I believe that God will even bring him back from the dead. Has that happened yet at that point in the Old Testament? No. What kind of faith is that? But there's another way that we get tests wrong. Because sometimes we just don't see that the test is not to prove something. It's to grow us. The other way that we get things wrong, though, is that we equate testing with temptation. That God is there and he's dangling something in front of us to see, all right, are you really going to do this? What, wh where, where are your alliances? And wh why are we spending time talking about this testing? Because this is so important for us to understand the nature of how God tests us. Because the reality is, if you are in Christ, you will be tested. But again, we look at these tests wrong. It's kind of how often we misread the test of the Garden of Eden. Jesus, God, it would have been so much easier if there was no test. Why do you have to tempt them that way? Why do you have to put that beautiful fruit in front of them, just, just tempting them to do that? Don't we read that, it that way a lot? But that's not what was happening. Jesus, God, had created them, worshiping him, but he told them, you have a choice. You have the option. You are not, you are not forced to worship me. It is your choice. But if there was no test, there would have been no choice. It wasn't a temptation. It was showing that this was real. Now, Satan did use it as a temptation, but that wasn't God. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't test us to tempt us. 
He's not setting us up for failure. He tests us to expose our hearts, to show us what is true, to show us our need. We will fail tests. But, but the wrong thinking when we fail a test is to think, oh, well, the reason I failed that test, it's the, it's the teacher's fault. That's, that's where our culture is going. How many times I could ask some of the teachers here that you, when you're teaching and, and a student does poorly on a test, what, what are the parents going to do now? This is your fault. You're the reason that they failed this. That's not how it happens. No, the test is not. If you fail the test, it's not the, the person who gave the test. It's your fault. It exposes your need. We could say, well, we could say, you know what? Hey, if you didn't get me a, give me a test, I wouldn't have failed that. Well, what's the point of the test? To show us our need. So we need to rethink this. We need to not think of of it as a peer-to-peer test. We need to think of this as a teacher to a student, as a father to a child, as a doctor who is exposing sickness. That's what God's doing here. This is what Jesus is doing when he tests Philip. So again, the question, why is Philip being tested? Why are the disciples being tested? In order for them to grow. When you're facing trials and tests, trust God that he has a reason. It's not like the tests that you face in this life where there are bad motivations. The motivation that God has is that you would grow. He wants Philip to connect what he believes, what he has seen, what he has learned to who and what God can do. Think real quick. Let's think about the context here. What has Philip, what have the disciples seen? Well, back in chapter 2, the first sign we saw, Jesus turned water to wine. They saw that power. Since that time, they've seen many signs. And what do all the signs point to? Who Jesus is. They've seen that. What have they learned? Think back on the last several, a couple messages that we had with Stephen Page and then later last week's message. What have they learned to be true about Jesus? How was Jesus able to do those signs? Because he was God. They've seen the evidence. They've learned the truth. And they've received it. It says after the miracle with water to wine that the disciples believed. And so Philip has come to a point, the disciples have come up to a point where they've seen the truth. They've learned the truth. They believe the truth. But now's the test. Now the test comes in. And and how does that truth apply to tests? One of the things that I think is just, just an element of, of interest, um, um, many of you have, have watched, been watching The Chosen, and one of the, the benefits of watching the series The Chosen, um, which if you haven't seen it, it's a series that's out right now, just looking at, at the life of Jesus. It's not scripture. There's things that, get, that it gets wrong, but one of the main benefits is the humanity that it brings out. These were real people. These really happened. And what I love in this passage is this tone that Jesus kind of has, that there's this conspiratorial side, that there's something else going on here, this kind of tongue-in-cheek, and hey, Philip, man, look at that crowd. What what could we, where could we get bread to buy for all of them? Hmm, I wonder. He did it knowing what he was going to do. See, the tests from God aren't like tests with, with us where we don't know the result. Jesus knew And he tests him. So in light of knowing what Philip believes, what he's seen, what he's heard, what he's learned, what is Philip's response to the test? Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 days of working and saving up all of the money would not be enough to buy the bread that this crowd needs. What's Philip's answer to the test. Jesus, this is impossible. This, there's not enough. 
There's not enough money. There's, there's, there's not enough food. But Philip's not alone because Andrew's going to jump in too. Look what Andrew says in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Andrew's got part of a solution. Hey, I, I found some food. But the reality is I look at that food and it's just not enough. See, for both Philip and Andrew, they see this problem and they find it hopeless. And this isn't the first time that we've actually seen words of Philip and Andrew. Uh, One of the things, so John hasn't up to this point had too many words that we've heard the disciples speak. But two of the disciples that he has highlighted are Philip and Andrew. Back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 40, it says this, One of the two disciples who heard John speak, John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So we know Andrew believes in Jesus. Then it talks about Philip. um, Jesus finds Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They know who Jesus is. They've believed in Jesus. But now they have a problem. The problem is that they are now facing real problems, and therefore they're looking for real solutions. Their problem is that their theology has left because reality has set in. Now, let's be really careful here to not be like, oh, Philip. Oh, Andrew, you just don't get it. Andrew, Philip, it's so clear. Guys, they didn't know anything that we don't know ourselves. Everything that they knew are things that have been revealed to us. But what do we do when we face problems? At what point does Jesus enter into your solution? Let's be honest. Usually, there's a lot of times where Jesus never enters the solution. Yeah, you know what? Jesus is the answer here. Like, if I were to ask you right now, hey, guys, what's the answer? Who's the answer? I'm pretty confident that if, if even if we, you weren't having any question and I just came up and I said to you as I greeted you, who's the answer? I'm pretty sure you would be like, all right, let's see where we are. Yep, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. But as soon as we start walking out the door and the reality of life starts creeping in and that transition starts happening, how often does Jesus stop being the answer? Where reality sets in and so our theology leaves. But Jesus is testing that. Jesus is saying, no, your belief in me should result in trusting me in the tests and trials. So hang on, because Jesus is about to teach them a lesson. He's going to teach us the same lesson. So look at verse 10 through 11. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Notice that at a multitude of points in this miracle, Jesus is including his disciples. Why? Because he wants them to learn something. First, he makes them all aware of the problem. Where are we to buy bread for all these people? If the disciples weren't already thinking about that problem, they are now because Jesus flat out asked them. Then Jesus tells them to tell all the people to sit down. Now, in light of what the disciples just told Jesus, hey, we we really don't have any solutions, do they think that it makes sense what Jesus is telling them to do now? No. No. No, and you can imagine, like, no, Jesus, we already told you we can't feed them. Don't tell them to sit down. Tell them to go get food. In fact, if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew 14, they pretty much say literally that. Jesus, this is a desolate place. There's no food here. Send them away. 
But what does Jesus say? No. Have them sit down. Tell them to all sit down. And let's not miss the scope of this test, right? This is, I've never been tested this way. This is a big test. 5,000 men, which most likely means that the entire size of the crowd was much, much larger than that. Even because we see that there was a boy here that they got the loaves from who wouldn't have been included in that number of men. So there's other people here as well. This is a big crowd. And imagine the tension that the disciples have as they're like, oh, we already told him there's not enough food. And now we have to go around telling people to sit down. And now there's going to be expectations. And so the tension is rising. You get that, again, that conspiratorial sense from Jesus. I I know what I'm going to do. Yeah. Tell them to sit down. Just let, let the tension build for a little bit. But then look what he does. It gets quiet. I'm imagining. But it gets quiet. Jesus stands up. People are like, oh, shh, shh, shh. he's going to talk about it. Shh, shh. Jesus gives thanks, and he starts passing out bread. Now, th- at that moment... All the back row Baptists were like, oh, we messed up. There's no way the food's going to get back here. Why did we sit in the back row? We shouldn't have done that. There's no way. All the food's just going to be for the people in the front. There's no way they have enough food. But then he starts passing out and keeps passing and keeps passing until all of them ate their fill. What has Jesus just taught his disciples? He's taught them that belief in Jesus should result in trusting him during tests and trials. That doesn't mean that Jesus is always going to solve our tests through miracles like this, but it does mean that we should always trust Jesus to do the right thing. For the disciples, the problem was hopeless. There's not enough money. There's not enough food. But through this miracle, Jesus calls on them to trust him. He's telling them, you believe in me. Are you willing to trust me? But his lesson isn't over. He's going to add an exclamation mark. Look what happens in verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, again, including the disciples in the process, he's wanting to teach them something, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Again, he's including them. But here's, a, here's something that I just don't think that I've made this connection before. If we were at, uh, we, we had, um, a teaching time downstairs this last week for the uh, church leadership, and um, I had to buy food for just around 20 people. And all I was buying was snacks. And I still filled a trunk just for the, for the two days for, for the guys that were going to be there. And, and the amount of food there, and responsibly, I bought a little extra because I didn't want it to run out. So what should I do with the extra? I should make an illustration and tape it to the wall. Um, what, what should I do with the extra? Just throw it out? Why was there extra? Well, because I'm not sovereign. I'm not omniscient. I didn't know how much people were going to eat. I didn't know what, what was going to be necessary. Who just did this miracle? Should there have been any extra? Did Jesus know exactly how much food was needed? Did Jesus know exactly how much he had to create? Why is there extra? Why are there leftovers? Because Jesus is teaching his disciples something. What did both disciples say? There's not enough. What does Jesus show? I'm more than enough. There's not enough money. There's not enough food. We can't do this. This test is too big. I'm more than enough. You're here this morning. You're facing trials. You're facing tests. Maybe not right now, but you're going to. And you might look at that situation and say, God, there's not enough. There's not enough. I don't have the money to do this. I don't have the resources to do this. I don't have the faith to do this. And what does Jesus teach them? Trust me. I'm more than enough. 
Gather up everything. Don't miss out on this. Pull it all together. Twelve baskets of leftovers. Far more than what they started with. Because Jesus wants his disciples to learn something. Belief in Jesus, that should result in trusting him during tests and trials. While you might think that you don't have enough, Jesus is always more than enough. That doesn't mean, again, that he's always going to solve it the way that we expect. But that's where the trust comes in. Trust him. Trust him to do the right thing. But now let's look, because the lesson continues. While this lesson has specific, is specifically for his disciples, we can also learn from the crowd. Because look what happens with the crowd. Verse 14, when the people, the crowd, saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Consider the crowds in this. They've just seen something incredible. They believe that Jesus is at least some type of messianic fulfillment. This is indeed the prophet that Moses wrote about. But look what happens. Have they learned who he is? Do they trust him? No, look what they do. Verse verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They have seen something incredible, but do they trust him? When you try to force, why do you force someone to do something? What leads you to, to making the decision to force someone to do something? You don't trust them to do it on their own. The crowd wants to force Jesus to be king. What does that mean? Hey, we, we think we know who you are. We think that you have power. We've seen that. We've learned that. But we don't trust you to do it the right way. You've got this wrong. You, you've got most of it, but, but you missed this really important part of the solution. So we're going to force you to be king. Remember last week, Jesus said, I do not receive glory from people. Now, that, does that mean that God is not seeking glory from man? No, he is. We are made to glorify God. That's our purpose. We're meant to glorify him. He came so that we can glorify him. But Jesus does not put that out of priority. He does not say, you know what? My main mission is to be glorified by men. Why? If that were the case, he would let them make him king right here. If, he was, if his main goal was to be glorified by these people, being king is a great way to be glorified. But who is he most concerned about receiving glory from? The Father. And to be made king here is not that way. That's not the way that God has chosen to glorify the Son. And so he says, no, you're not going to make me king. He removes himself. You don't trust me to do what needs to be done. Again, I think we'd love to think of ourselves in a much better light than these disciples and the crowd. But how often do we try to force Jesus into our solution? Jesus, I know what you need to do. Jesus, this is my situation. This is how you solve my problem. That's not glorifying God. That's not honoring God as God. Honoring God as God is submitting to him and saying, God, I trust you. I don't know what's happening. I don't know how you're going to fix this problem, but I'm going to trust you to, for you to be king. If, if, if you're really king, then I don't get to tell you what to do. Do you see the oxymoron, this, this element that doesn't make sense? Force him to be king. Kings are the ones that tell other people what to do. How, do, how does that work? Again, What Jesus is showing is that belief in Jesus should result in trusting him during our tests and trials. This is what we are called to do. Let's move on now. We've seen the test. Now let's look at the trial. We've seen the test. And in this test, we've seen the disciples go through this. Is anyone in danger of dying? I mean, you might be saying, I'm so hungry, I'm starving to death. Not really. 
No one's in danger of dying. Is, are, are they in, in danger that this is going to become a mutinous crowd, all of these things? No. Is it a legitimate test? Yeah, it's hard. But now they're going to face a real trial. Look at the next portion. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When Jesus fed them, again, it was just a test, but now, now it's about to get real. Look what it says. When is this happening? Evening. It's getting dark. The passage even says, it was now dark. Where is this happening? This is happening in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a big sea. It's about eight miles um, wide and about 13 miles long. It's a big sea. And who are the characters here? Who is here and who isn't? The disciples are there. But what does the passage show us? Who's not there? Jesus. Jesus is again going to go a little bit deeper into the truth of who he is. He's going to make that connection for them. Because now they could say, well, you know what? Okay, Jesus, we get it. We've, we've gone through this test. We need to rely on you when you're here. You know, real problems. Don't, we can think we have the real solution, but we can look to you because you're here with us and you can solve the problem. Great. What happens at the very next trial? Where's Jesus? He's not there present troubles without the presence of Jesus. This is a new deal. And so look what happens. I would imagine that it's scary. They're in, a, in the middle of the storm. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, I like storms. I like watching storms. But here's something that is consistent with all the storms I've gone through. I've been on dry land. It's a big difference. The closest I've been to anything different was hiking a mountain in the middle of the storm. That was a little bit more iffy. Put me on a boat in the middle of the storm, I'm going to be terrified. I don't know how big the boat was, but the fact that it says later that they were rowing makes me think it wasn't very big. You don't row cruise liners. You row rowboats. They're out in this. Now, I get it that these were sailors, okay? A lot of these men were fishermen. And maybe their experience would lead to not being afraid, but in my experience, knowing the reality of the situation often makes me more terrified. They're out there. They're out in the middle of the lake. It's dark. They really need a present Jesus for their present problem. But where's Jesus? So then it says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, so they're way out there, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. They're in the middle of the sea. There's nothing around them. I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but walking on water is not an ability that humans have. Okay? So when you're in the middle of the sea, you shouldn't expect to see someone taking a stroll next to you. They're terrified. Uh, I, was, I had the privilege of reading uh, this week, um, Sherry Holloway wrote a paper on this passage, and I was reading through it, and she brought an element out that I, I hadn't even thought of, that John was there. John's writing about the experience. He's saying, we were terrified. This was this moment. Imagine that. Jesus comes. Jesus is now present. And he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Now there's some things here that I want to, to, us to notice about this. When Jesus says, It is I, what he's saying is, I am. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew phrase that God used in the Old Testament to identify himself. I am. What is Jesus saying right here? It's not, it is I, oh, it is I. You, you did not notice. It's me. No. He's giving them a truth. He's reminding them of his identity. 
I am. I, we could understand it as I am God. And then he gives them the command, do not be afraid. Now, right now, at the moment that Jesus says that, what's changed about their circumstances? Are they still in a boat? Are they still in a storm? Are they still miles away from shore? Jesus, you can't tell us to not be afraid. Nothing's changed. But one thing has. He's reminded them of the truth. I am. I am present. When you're facing trials, one of the problems with fear, we see the fear here, one of the things that fear always does is it makes you feel alone. That you are separated. You're the only one going through this. But you're not alone. You have present trials, but you can face them with a present Jesus. I am. I am here. I am with you. Do not be afraid. The whole foundation for what Jesus is telling them, nothing has changed. None of the circumstances. The whole foundation for his command to not be afraid is based on the reality of who he is. I am. And so it says, they w- then they were glad to take him into the boat. They responded. They understood that truth, that God was present. They welcomed them, him into their situation. God was present. Now again, I don't know what's going to happen in your trial. I don't know if God is going to calm the storm. But he's present. Someday the storm will end. That might only be in glory. But know that Jesus is present in the trial right now. It finishes and says, And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus did see them through the storm. Jesus got them to the other side. Do you trust Jesus in the midst of your trial to get you to the other side? I don't know when that's going to happen. I'm not promising here, hey, just trust Jesus and it's just going to go away like that. Immediately, they were on the other side. That might not happen for you, but it will happen. Belief in Jesus should result in trusting him during our tests and trials. We're going to just finish with this. I want to finish just with some truth. See, the reality is this, this is hard. Tests and trials are hard. Some of you, we've, I've, I've had the privilege of walking with you through some tests and trials over the last year. Some of you have walked through some of those with me. They aren't easy. But do we trust God? Do we see him as more than enough? Do we see him as present What you need, what we all need, is to not be people who have a theology that leaves us as reality sets in. We need this theology to impact our reality. We need our reality to be seen through the lens of theology. What does God say is true? The most important truth, the truth that is our foundation, is the gospel. What did Jesus do? The greatest problem, the greatest storm, the greatest test, the greatest trial is your separation from God. And Jesus saw us through that. Jesus paid the price. He died in our place, and he offers that to us. He rose again. If we believe in him, we have eternal life. He sees us through that. Apply that truth to your test and trial now. Jesus saw you through the problem of sin. He can see you through this test and trial now. The other truth, though, that I want you to remember is history. Remember your personal history. This isn't your first test. This isn't your first trial. What has God done before? Look to the way God answered before and apply that truth, that foundation to the problem of today. Remember what he's done. Now you might say, but Stephen, I I haven't seen that much. 
I'm, I'm a kid listening to this. I'm a recent convert. I haven't been able to see all those things. Okay, but first, remember the truth of the gospel. You have that. That is your strongest foundation. But do you know what you also have? God's history. One of the beautiful things in this passage are the allusions that are in it. I'm, I'm just going to show this real quick to you, just for you to see that some of the truth that you can believe does not necessarily mean experience, exper experience by yourself. It can be things that you've seen God do. Think about some of the allusions. When, at the very beginning, when, what time is this happening? During the Passover. That makes us think of Exodus, where God saved his people from the captivity of slavery. We have a God who the Passover lamb, who saved us from the captivity and slavery of sin. Jesus gives the food to the crowds. Well, what happens next in Exodus? Manna from heaven. In fact, our next passage from next week is going to show that that's part of what Jesus was doing. That he sustained them. We can, they could look back and say, God has done this. He sustains his people. He sustains them here. He sustains you. God meets them in the middle of the sea. What happened to Israel? The Red Sea. When you look at the sea in the Old Testament, it is often chaos. It is often things that are wrong. And they are now, the disciples are in the sea, just like the Israelites were facing the sea and were likely to die. And what did God do? He saw them through it. As he saw the disciples through it. And then one last illusion. What does, Jesus, what does God say to Moses to go tell his people? Well, who should I say sent me? What does he say? I am. What does Jesus do here to his disciples? I am. You might not have all of the life experience to be able to look at your personal history, but you have the people of God. You have God's history. For all of us, trust him. As the worship team comes up, Belief in Jesus should result in trusting him during our tests and trials. Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is present. Trust Jesus.